Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Hurd, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast In Trust on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Monday edition of Bloomberg Sound On. We're live from Washington here, and we start with two big things that you need to know right now. First, and this is all fresh today, the Treasury Secretary will update us on the X date. And then comes the big meeting. Speaker McCarthy and President Biden, 5.30 p.m. Washington time. It's just been made official a short time ago from the White House. 5.30 p.m., the president meets with Speaker Kevin McCarthy in the Oval Office. And they each, of course, are carrying their own posture into this, trying to acknowledge some optimism, some progress, while also making it clear that they don't love what the other side is asking for. Here's President Biden in Hiroshima. We are willing to cut spending as well as raise revenue so people start paying their fair share. Speaker McCarthy last evening on the Hill trying to thread the needle in his own way. I walk through things that I'm looking at and what I'm looking at are where our differences are and how could we um, solve those. And I, I felt that part was uh, productive. productive. But look, there's no agreement. We're still apart. Still far up. Okay, so but similar met Productive, we're willing to do this, but we're still far apart. That's where we begin with Zach Cohen. Bloomberg Government Congress reporter joining us for the latest on this. And Zach has been following each wrinkle here. Uh, what should we expect knowing all of this, Zach, from this meeting? They start at 530. We don't get a deal tonight, do we? That seems unlikely, especially given the fact that they are far apart on really kind of key issues, including how long would any spending caps go or which parts of the government would be subject to these caps. Republicans have talked about trying to exempt things like defense spending, military spending from any automatic caps, uh, whereas Democrats think those should be part of the discussions as part of an ongoing negotiation over how much social services or domestic spending mm-hmm. should be included. These are all really critical questions that it usually take weeks or months uh, for uh, congressional appropriate government you know, spenders to figure out. and so, but, the, but this particular meeting is going to be important. A, a number of their negotiators met over the weekend uh, yep. from the White House and from the McCarthy team, uh, and now uh, it really gets down to brass tacks here. So what does that tell us here? I don't want to turn you into a market analyst, uh, but the, the potential for anything to come out of this meeting tonight while Wall Street is listening, there are a lot of concerns about what might happen when the bell rings tomorrow because 
you know, if they walk out kind of like we saw last week, or if Kevin McCarthy comes in the driveway and says, not a not an honest player, we're not getting anywhere here, this is going to have real repercussions, I presume, in the financial markets beyond the gyrations we've already seen in bonds, Zach. Yeah, I don't think it's any um, accident that this meeting is happening at a 5.30, certainly after <laughs> the markets close, and that a lot of the sort of drama was happening over the weekend, Saturday morning, where Republican negotiators coming out and saying they're not being serious, we're putting a pause on these talks, if that had happened while the markets were in session. I think that would have been a different conversation. And so, look, they, they certainly need to come to some form of an agreement, um, and I do think that some form of market instability or maybe even a, a credit downgrade might be the thing that finally gets them to an agreement. That's what's what we saw in 2011, where we saw the U.S. government's uh, credit rating de- downgraded before an eventual agreement was reached. And there needs to be that kind of financial pressure before folks get down to you know the the actual details that need to be reached in the hard decisions in order to get something over the finish line. Zach, thank you so much, Zach Cohen, Bloomberg Government Congress reporter, teeing things up for our conversation with Barbara Boxer, the former Democratic senator from California, who used to chair the Senate Ethics Committee, former ranking member. Senate Environmental Committee with an eye on these negotiations now. Uh, Senator, it's great to have you back on Bloomberg. Well, thank you. It's always nice to be with you. As uh, we try to read the tea leaves, and I know you're no stranger to deal making like this, uh, not to mention deadlines like this. And I wonder, Senator, do you see a deal coming to form here in the midst of all this noise? I want to say yes. I very much want to say yes. I, I can't say yes. I can't say no. What I can say is that we've never had a circumstance where you're dealing with uh, one of the principals who has a tenuous hold on his leadership. That's McCarthy. Mm -hmm. And how far he can go is very unclear. And if he insists on the budget that they put forward as part of the deal, it's not going to happen because that's going to result in literally millions of jobs lost and a recession. You know what this whole thing reminds me of? I, I, I really mean this. If you get up in the morning and you go brush your teeth and wash your face, and if you're a guy, you shave. If you're a woman, you put on your makeup. Mm-hmm. And then you, you look good. And then you take a hammer and you hit yourself in the head. Okay. That is exactly what this is about. And it's a made-up crisis. It's baloney. For Trump, the Republicans walked the line and never said one word when he added more than 25% to the debt. So this is made up. I can't predict what will happen, but I will tell you that if something bad happens, everyone's going to know who's to blame, period, end of quote. And it's not going to be Joe Biden. Well, of course, Republicans have different ideas about that. But, I, you know, we're talking well, about... For them. But if then this is made explain, up, but, it is, but wait, it's a but self-imposed wait, deadline... Why not just eliminate it? Well, of course. We, we should get rid of it. Mitch McConnell himself suggested that. Look, it's very clear. Trump said, don't even think about playing with the deficit, with the uh, debt limit ceiling. Do it. And they followed him. They, now they ask him, well, what do you think they should do? He said, bring the whole country down. Why? Because I'm not president. I mean, how more ridiculous can it get? And, and the hero, Ronald Reagan, said, you don't think about this. You don't hurt the country. You know, this party, the Republican Party, has gone to a place that is dangerous for, for all of us. Again, a self-inflicted wound. These are, these are bills that are owed for past spending, mm-hmm. which 
we can say both parties have engaged in, whether it's from tax cuts to the wealthy or spending. So get over it, grow up, and stop it. The last point I'd make that I think is important, you know, we've got divided government. The Republicans are in charge of the budget. Do your work. Do your budget. The Senate will do its budget. They'll go to conference. They'll resolve the differences. And we don't have to play with disaster. This is a nightmare. How badly, then, do you feel Democrats wounded themselves by not raising the debt ceiling in the last Congress? Could have got this right out of the way. Should have done it. Should have, could have, would have. Mm-hmm. But again, we saw the Republicans put up no problems for Trump. And I guess people thought, oh, maybe, 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 you know, they get the point. You don't fight about what you did in the past. You fight about what you're going to spend in the future. But that was a mistake. Agreed. Well, as a Democrat, the president and the speaker here are negotiating over everything from budget cuts to work requirements. Are you worried about what ends up in this deal or do you trust the president to do the right thing? I do trust the president. I don't like the fact that there is a negotiation. I personally liked it better when he said he wasn't going to. But it is what it is. And he's a pragmatist. But he's not going to give up something that, you know, is going to hurt the country. I I just don't see it at all. Mm -hmm. But I just don't know if McCarthy can, you know, could, could get anything done. I don't know. I think the sensible center, you know, it, it could save the day. The, if, if the Republicans who, are, who, who won in Biden district sign a discharge petition, they can get this onto the floor, do a clean debt ceiling and done with it. The, the other thing is people should read the 14th Amendment. It's pretty darn clear. Yeah. You know, the, the debt of the United States shall not be questioned. I wish that could be tested. I understand it's complex, but I think it needs to be tested. You wonder if there's a next time, certainly, because this president didn't seem opposed to it. But, Senator, he said, you know, this thing's going to get bound up in court and, and, and we might not end yeah. up in, in a better position. He doesn't have the time, he seems to think, to make that work, does he? he? He is concerned himself about the time to test the 14th. But it's it's something that, you know... People read the Second Amendment who think, you know, guns can be every place. They read the Second Amendment that way. If you read the 14th Amendment in the same spirit, you could see that, you know, the debt should not be questioned, period, end of quote. Whatever it is, we cannot play games with this thing. So this this is coming to a head. Again, I would reiterate, after, you know, three years of Trump uh, lifting the ceiling without a any problems. I think Democrats were lulled into the feeling that maybe uh, Republicans wouldn't play games, but they're so obvious. You know, they don't play games when it's a Republican president. They play, play games when it's a Democratic president. It's outrageous. It's ridiculous. It's not the Republican Party I grew up with. Let me put it that way. Well, is it the Democratic Party you grew up with as well? And I ask you that because we're seeing both men here. If we really cook this down to the president and the speaker, they're being pushed by the various wings of their own parties and the president's being threatened by progressives to not go ahead and do this. Do not agree to additional work requirements, for instance, do not cut spending because they're not going to vote for this particular deal. So we end up with a center potentially making this decision. Yes. If this is going to pass, it has to come through the center. Yeah. And, and I think there are uh, people in the democratic party who won't go for anything because they're still so strongly there should be a clean debt ceiling. 
And there are others that say we need to be pragmatic. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think the sensible center will come together, hopefully come together. Now, when I say that, I'm talking about nine Republicans. That's who they have that's in the sensible center and the vast majority of Democrats. So, yeah, it's it's complicated. It's nuanced. The president's not going to do anything that's going to hurt anybody. But the whole thing is stupid. It's annoying. <laughs> it's ridiculous. It's crazy. It, 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 again, it's like looking in the mirror saying, gee, I look nice, but here's a hammer, hit myself in the head. That's exactly what, you know, these people are doing just mm. for politics, you know, to make somebody look lousy or whatever. I, I'm, I'm so done with it. Well, and we need to deal with it in a sensible way when this is passed. I'm sure your opinions are informed by the lessons of 2011. And I wonder when yes. you step back here, can you tell us, can, is it even possible to tell our listeners here how this is going to end? I think it's going to end eventually in the right way and the ceiling will be lifted. I don't know how long that will take. I, I do feel in my heart that if the Republicans walk away from a sensible offer uh, and that's the end of it, we know the impact. It's going to be ugly. It's going to be horrifying. And they'll get the blame for it. And after that, um, if the president has to say, you know, I'm going to invoke the 14th, yeah. if he has to go that route, he may have to go that route. But I, I just believe in my heart, again, that nine Republicans could save the day if they choose to do so. Mm -hmm. Barbara Boxer, the former Democratic senator from California, getting the train started here for us on Bloomberg Sound On. We thank you, Senator, for the insights as we assemble the panel for their take on this. We'll do a quick swing here with Rick and Jeannie, and we'll dig into this in just a moment, a little bit deeper here. Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano, Bloomberg Politics contributors. What's your thought here, uh, Jeannie, to hear from a, a, a California Democrat acknowledging that the, the path, the solution, must come through the center? Does that give you a sense that everyone's view of this has been checked somewhat in the past couple of weeks? Yeah, you know, I, I certainly hope so. And I hope she is right. I, you know, I just have enormous number of questions about the timing here. And can they, in fact, get this through the center? You know, I agree with her on the discharge petition. I am less confident on the 14th Amendment. Nothing about that amendment is clear in the writing of it that it would pass through this Supreme Court. So I think they do need to get it through the center. But time is of the essence unless they get a short term deal and then take some time to work on this. And McCarthy sounded very negative about Democrats as he entered yeah. Capitol today. Well, yes, and a headline just crossed uh, the terminal here as the, the House Speaker is uh, talking to reporters, Rick. The headline is, decisions have to start being made. We do not have a deal yet. This is the posturing before the meeting? Yeah, obviously it's a posturing before the meeting, but it's been posturing every day uh, sure for the last you know two weeks. And, uh, and, and, and look, I mean, you know, it's one thing to play the public game. I'm, I understand everything, you know, that's a negotiation has to be played out in the public domain. Uh, but uh, this idea that somehow uh, we can do it in a vacuum and not affect markets, not affect other members. Uh, I mean, it's only getting worse rather than better. I mean, time is not their friend. Uh, their public comments are not their friend. Both Biden and, 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 and McCarthy, I think, have been culpable in this. And what they need to do is shut up and get a deal done here here uh on the lack of friends in washington we'll see if the markets feel the same way more with rick and Jeannie coming up 
Do you love Elon Musk? Do you hate Elon Musk? Do you have no idea what to think about Elon Musk? Then we have just the show for you. He's become even more larger than life. Buying Twitter doesn't get us closer to Mars. They are like really close to the edge of like everything falling apart. Like, oh, Elon, I volunteer, put a chip in my brain. Each week on this podcast, we'll break down, analyze, and debate the most important stories on Musk and his empire. It's all one big universe. You just work for Elon Inc. From Bloomberg Businessweek, this is Elon Inc. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. It's on to South Carolina. At least that's the case for Senator Tim Scott. He's in. We knew that. He laid the paperwork last week, but the big announcement came this morning. Please give a warm, low country welcome to the man I am blessed to call Uncle Timmy, your yes. United States Senator, Tim Scott. His nephew there for the big introduction. How about the theatrics here? There we go. Ladies and gentlemen. Hello, Mom Charleston! Whoa! All right, the crowd in place there as the presidential campaign becomes Thank official. Thank you. Wow. One more for Republicans, Hello, a field, Carolina. of course, that Donald Trump is dominating right now. Whoa. God bless you. And as he Thank danced his so way much. across the stage Thank there, you. a lot Very of us were wondering, when's the governor from Florida going to announce? Thank you, thank you, thank you. Obviously, I can't dance. As you know that I already, wouldn't have so. said that, actually. I mean, I've seen Donald Trump dance. And one of the biggest news items there was the uh, the endorsement. Forget this being a race that's been decided, ladies and gentlemen. My name is John Thune. Yeah. And I come from the other South state, John South Dakota. John there to make the introduction and the endorsement here in the presidential campaign, and we reassemble our panel for their take on all of this. Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis are with us, Bloomberg Politics contributors, and Rick, uh, you know what it means to run a presidential campaign. Does Tim Scott think he can win? Well, I think he he thinks it's worth entering, and he's got the resources, and 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 I think that's enough for now. Yeah. Uh, not every presidential candidate has a pathway to succeed. I've certainly been on those campaigns, <laughs> and uh, and yet you know you don't know what's going to happen in the process. The process dictates it, and so he's got a lot of appeal uh, to caucus goers in Iowa, his, 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 um, evangelicalism and, uh, and conservatism will play well there. Uh, obviously his home base in South Carolina is really important. Uh, and so he starts with really a much better prospect than, than most other candidates in the field right now. And so, uh, uh, yeah, I think it's great that he's in it. I think it shows well for the Republican party, his optimism and, and positive nature is I think going to be welcome in a in a in a campaign right now that's really been defined by Donald Trump and you know his darkness and his grievances so it's a great contrast to that end the latest we have here is a Harvard Harris poll came out Friday uh, Jeannie Trump at 58 DeSantis 16 Pence 4 Haley 4 Ramaswamy 4 
and a guy named Tim Scott at 1%. So this will be a story of name recognition for the time being. It will. And I think that's why Donald Trump in a, you know, sort of about face, he's very excited about Tim Scott entering this race. He says Tim Scott's a big step up from Ron DeSanctimonious, who is totally unelectable. Why would he ever say that? Because, of course, Tim Scott's in the single digits and Ron DeSanctimonious is not. And of course, because the more people in this field, the better off for Donald Trump. And he knows that. So, you know, he's very, very hostile towards Ron DeSantis. But Tim Scott, he's got his support. He even talked about doing a big deal on Opportunity Zones with Tim Scott. So, you know, he's even going to point to some policy achievements for Tim Scott. So he's helping out a little bit. He retruthed it uh, just two hours ago. (laughs) I keep Jeannie logged in here, Rick. Uh, Indeed. Good luck to Senator Tim Scott in entering the Republican presidential primary race. He gives the knock on Ron DeSantis. And again, good luck, Tim! Exclamation point. We don't have a potential ticket in the works here, do we? Uh, I don't know. I mean, it was kind of the same reaction to uh, a few others who have gotten in. Uh, Nikki Haley got a, mm-hmm. a relatively warm. Maybe it's just South Carolina. He doesn't want to upset any of those voters who are going right. to be up early primary. But I do think it's relevant that, um, that John Thune, uh, number two in the leadership of the Senate, came down to Charleston to have uh, uh, this endorsement. Uh, There aren't very many senators in this race right now, which is quite unusual since most senators who either are not in – you know, some kind of rehab or imprisonment think they're candidates for president. And so, uh, you know, I think this is telling that this, the that one of the senior members of the leadership came down there and have endorsed him. So, well, so but what was that, Rick? Was he just inoculating himself against uh, the Trump backlash? Should he not endorse Donald Trump? No, I think it's actually probably a lot of senators are looking at this going, we've got to do something to change the narrative around the Republican Party is, is Donald Trump. And I think that they like and trust Tim Scott. He's been a good partner in the Republican caucus in the Senate. And uh, I don't imagine this will be the the only United States senator uh, on the Republican side to Mm -hmm. to endorse uh, Tim Scott. But I think it's certainly a good indication that leadership has been talking about him. And of course, on Wednesday, at least that's what we're hearing. Jeannie, Ron DeSantis will make it official with paperwork and some kind of, I don't know if it's a written announcement or a video. He's not going to hold the big uh, the big party, the big rally until next week. Both of these uh, guys, while they're getting some news coverage here, run the risk of, of just very poor timing uh, with, the, with the potential of a debt ceiling deal or not deal. It's going to suck all the oxygen out of the room. Is this the worst week to announce a presidential campaign? It's a pretty tough week. But then again, you know, there is so much news being made coming out of Washington. It's hard to think of a week in which they may not be fighting with other bigger stories. And, you know, and I think Ron DeSantis had some good news in in the last couple of days. One was Hal Lambert said he was going to go for DeSantis and abandon Trump, which, of course, got Trump's ire. He, of course, is the founder of, of Point Bridge Capital, who oversees MAGA ETF. And the other one was that we also heard that Robert Bigelow is supporting Ron DeSantis. So he's got some big time donors there. Obviously, Trump still has, you know, raising huge amounts of money. But, you know, DeSantis does have a play here. I think the biggest question I have is while these people keep saying Trump isn't electable in the purple states and DeSantis has said that he is, I'm not sure, given how really, really draconian some of his Florida policies 
policies are, beginning with the Florida six weeks on abortion, which Trump even seems more moderate than that. So I think he could, you know, help himself in the primary with some of these policies. But I'm not so certain that, you know, I can beat Trump and beat Biden in particular is a winning message at this point. Pretty big news today. The NAACP issuing a warning, a travel advisory, uh, telling its members to avoid the state of Florida because of DeSantis policies. Rick, that's quite a a tee up for a campaign announcement, isn't it? Yeah, obviously, DeSantis has put himself in the middle of the uh, public debate uh, about the uh, war on woke that he's uh, um, um, fighting. And, And I think that's going to have ramifications, obviously, like this. Um, uh, pretty smart to get out ahead of his announcement and sort of, you know, grab some headlines before uh, DeSantis gets in this race formally. But uh, at the end of the day, he's he's hitched his wagon to that issue set and he's going to ride it as far as it goes. And if it doesn't go very far, tough luck. Wow. We're just getting started. It's only Monday. Tim Scott is in, Ron DeSantis next. And of course, you'll be hearing about them both throughout the week here on Sound On with analysis from our panel. Many thanks, Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington. Nice to see Kaylee Lines coming off the weekend. The sun comes up somehow every day, Kaylee, even without a debt ceiling deal. But today is going to be an important one. It already is, of course. We've got the big meeting and and how it became one-on-one. Mm. It does make you wonder why it wasn't that way already with Kevin McCarthy and Joe Biden. They're going to talk at 530 Eastern time. And as we've seen with each of these meetings, the posturing has already begun. It has. I mean, we've had House Speaker Kevin McCarthy speaking with reporters multiple times already today. Yes. And the latest line out of him, I think we can make it all happen by the debt deadline. (laughs) I the think. alternative, of course, would not be acceptable. Right. Uh, but not not exactly feeling the love here either. Is no. Kevin McCarthy in the corridors of the Capitol a short time ago. The Democrats, since they took the majority, has been addicted to spending, and that's going to stop. We're going to spend less than we spent last year. And it's very hard to get them off that spending spree that they're addicted to. Addicted to spending. Mm-hmm. But that comes after President Biden told a room full at the G7 that he's willing to cut spending. Here's what he said in Hiroshima. We are willing to cut spending as well as raise revenue so people start paying their fair share. Revenue part might be a problem. Well, Speaker McCarthy himself has said that they will not be Non-starter. doing that. They will not sign anything that raises taxes, which kind of really gets down to this whole point, Joe, is that this is the nitty gritty details that they are now arguing over. The size and scope of the spending cuts, where the spending is getting cut, for what duration will spending be capped? Those are the conversations I would imagine have been happening on behalf of those negotiating for Team Speaker and Team White House, which was still underway this morning, and probably what it's going to come down to when you actually get the two principals in the room later on today. I will say that we have just seen a slow, slow narrowing of the voices in this conversation. It was last week. All right, it's just the Speaker team and the White House team. Forget Schumer. And McConnell and Jeffries, it's just speaker and president. Now, really, it's just speaker and president. I figured you said something when you when you bumped into him (laughs) yesterday. Can we talk about that on the air? It wasn't Uh, a news event. It's fair game. Everyone's in the wild here. But you're out there having a run on the National Mall and walking my dog. Just kind of look over to the right and I go, oh, 
Mr. Speaker. <laughs> hey, Mr. Speaker, how you doing today? And he said, good, thanks. And I said, Mr. Speaker, how are debt ceiling talks going? And he did, if I knew how to describe the hand motion, but just kind of a tilting of the hand, and he goes, so-so. Oh, all right. Did you identify yourself as a news person, or you were just a concerned citizen? I was a concerned citizen wow. walking my dog. I mean, the entire duration of the interaction was... 10 seconds. But that's, I don't know, like the most unguarded comment we've heard so far. Yeah. Sounds pretty honest. He was out for a nice Saturday morning stroll. Lovely weather. You tell him Mick Mulvaney sent you? (laughs) Hey, Mick, welcome back. Mick Mulvaney, the former OMB director, former acting White House chief of staff, former member of Congress is with us on the line. He joins us right around this time each week. Uh, Mick, I have to admit, when when I looked down, I said, Mick Mulvaney's back on. That means we lost another week. This is going to be a similar conversation, I'm guessing, to the one we had a week ago today. What's changed? Uh, time, fly, time flies when you're having fun. Um, I guess so. I, I, I also had a chance to talk to Kevin um, yesterday, not on the National Mall, for a little bit more than 10 seconds, but not much more. And when, when I asked him, I said, Kevin, what, what, what's happening? And he said, well, i got to talk to the president. I said, why? He goes, because the, the, the talks with his team went backwards. He said, before the president left, he said exactly what you've just played in the clip, which is that mm-hmm. he was okay with some level of reduced spending. And he said, we got in a room for these folks, and I, I apologize, I'm at the Tim Scott event, so I'm standing out in front of a large crowd, so I apologize for the background noise. The, um, it, it, when, when the president left the country and his team took over, their first bid was an increase in spending. So it seemed like it was a complete waste of time, and he was very eager to get back to talk to the president one-on-one, which is what I think should, should have been happening from the very get-go. I just have to pause the debt ceiling conversation for a moment to just reiterate that you are currently in South Carolina at the Tim Scott event. He, of course, just formally threw his hat in the ring for the presidency. Is that who you're back in in 2024, Mick? Why are you there? No, I, I'm here to cover. I'm, I'm friends with all these folks. Keep in mind, I served with Tim. Tim and I go back 10 years. Nikki was my governor, Nikki Haley. I served with Ron DeSantis. More importantly, played on the baseball team with Ron DeSantis. Mike Pence and I served both in the House together and in the, and in the White House. So I, all these folks are my friends, and you don't typically pick amongst your friends. So I've, what I've done is I told all of them I'd be more than happy to help them get up to speed on fiscal issues, budgetary issues, uh, talk to their teams and so forth and help them on policy. But I'm not, uh, I'm not in the game anymore of uh, endorsing or unendorsing candidates. Got it. All right. That means you're going to phone us from all of these announcements, I bet. But I hope Mick, so. Hope so. Yeah. Uh, Donald Trump uh, hit the truth social on this one. Very friendly message. Good luck. Good luck to Senator Tim Scott in entering the Republican presidential primary race. He takes a rib shot at Ron DeSanctimonious, as I read here, who he says is totally unelectable. But he says, I got opportunity zones done with Tim, a big deal that has been highly successful. Good luck, Tim, exclamation point. Is he writing that because Tim Scott has one percent or because he could potentially be the second half of a presidential ticket? Oh, no, I can, I can guarantee you it's absolutely the first half of that question. Okay. The president does not does not perceive him as a threat, and that's why he's he's saying those things. Look, um, Ron DeSantis is the lead challenger right now. There's no question he's getting all of Trump's attention, um, and will continue to do so until he's no longer a threat. Keep in mind, this is what Trump did back in 2016, right? Started, I think, after Jeb Bush because everybody perceived him as being the lead challenger. And then when Jeb was out of the race, he moved on to whoever the next person was in line. And everybody, I think, over the course of the of the campaign, sort of felt his ire. I expect the same thing to, to, to happen here. Uh, I don't believe that Tim Scott is running for vice president. I've heard some people ask for that today, and I don't, right, yeah. I don't think he'd be interested in being in Trump's vice president. So, no, I, I think that Trump is, does what he does, which is he says nice things about people that he doesn't think can threaten him. 
going to get back to the matter at hand here? Yeah, I'm just reading the wire right now, Mick, of the headlines continuing to cross from Speaker McCarthy saying we can get a deal done tonight. We can get a deal done tomorrow, but they need to have an agreement on the debt limit this week. When you spoke with him briefly, did he give you a sense of his confidence in the timeline? Because the clock is ticking. Uh, if I if I had to gauge his confidence, I think it would be dependent on the president. Keep in mind, I know the Dem- Republicans keep talking about this, but there's a reason for that, which is they have actually passed a bill. Um, and ordinarily, what would happen if things were working properly in Washington is that the Senate then would take up that bill. They'd either amend it or they'd pass their own bill, and then they'd go to conference. This is the old schoolhouse rock thing we used to see when we were kids, mm-hmm. that I'm just a bill. Mm-hmm. Yes, I'm only a bill. Y- you don't do it this way. Um, unless you're willing to sort of move quickly towards a deal. And I don't think he thinks that Biden is, is ready to do that. Here's why. I mean, Kevin feels like he has held up his end of the bargain. He got his extreme right wing on board with a package that nobody thought he could pass. No one thought he could pass any package to raise the debt ceiling, but he did. Now, I think if you ask Kevin and El Candor what he's worried about, is he doesn't think that Biden has control over his progressive wing the same way that Kevin is working with his right wing. And if Biden is not willing to upset or at least work a little bit against his, his, his extreme left wing, it may be more difficult to get a deal. And I think that is what's keeping people from being more confident than they are right now. So based on what we know here, Mick, I'm just cu- curious your gut check. Uh, the headlines were, we can get a deal tonight, we can get a deal tomorrow. Okay, next 48 hours, next 24 to 48 hours, and must have something on the debt limit this week. I think he just outlined... Uh, the extreme parameters, because if they don't have a debt limit deal this week, we're in bigger trouble than we thought. If he thinks we can get a deal tonight, is he projecting there to to suggest that he's open minded or does he actually believe that? Because if that's the case, they're a lot closer than most people think. Um, I think it's just that he's open minded. I, I think he's, he's he's gone there in good faith. They passed their bill. He's looking for some sort of counter from the Democrats. And I don't think he's gotten that yet. Again, I think he thought he had made progress with the president before the president left for Japan. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the, it was sort of a lost weekend uh, when the staff took over. By the way, that's not unusual. A lot of times staff has their own sort of uh, agendas. And I know that sounds crazy that a, a staff person may have an de- agenda different than a president, but that is absolutely positively the case in every administration. So I think Kevin looks at it like we lost a couple days, like yeah. to get a deal in the next couple days um, if we can. Um, but that comes back to uh, Joe talked about at the very beginning. about this June 1st date is a hard date. Or is it just sort of the date that the Treasury threw out there to sort of force them to a deadline? Well, we just got another headline out of the speaker saying we are going to work together and solve this problem. But when he says this, I'm assuming he's meaning working together with the president, really the two parties that are going to be in the room later today. But we know, Mick, that even once they figure it out between the two of them, he still has to take it back and resell a deal to his caucus. I mean, you mentioned that he did managed to get a bill through the House of Representatives already. Obviously, whatever they work out, whatever compromise they make is going to be different looking than that original package. Do you think the speaker really has a sense of the whip count and how many Republicans he's going to be able to keep in line when he has to compromise? I think Kevin knows exactly how many votes he's got. I think the uh, I think did he share that with you? You got Uh, a number for us? I, I, I did not I did not ask him that, but I, I will tell you, I just had a conversation with a senator here at the, at, the, at, the, at, the, at the South Carolina event. We both said the same thing, which is th- this bill requires 60 votes in the Senate, period, end of story. It's always bipartisan. It has to be bipartisan. It's why the Republicans got the balanced budget deals in the 1990s. It's why they got the sequester in 2000. It's why the Democrats got more spending with Trump in office in 2017 and 2019. This is always a deal. 
and it always takes 60 votes in the Senate, which means it's going to lose some folks in the House on both sides. It just is. You can't, you're not going to have a bill passed in the Senate with you know, 10 or 15 Republicans, and they get every single Republican in the House. That's not how it works. Mm-hmm. But I think the question then becomes, is, you know, uh, can, can, can the left get their folks in line? Because I think Biden needs to recognize that as well, that he's going to have to upset some folks on his extreme left if he's going to cut a deal that can get 60 votes in the Senate. What is this going to come down to, uh, Mick? Is it the extent of cuts, the size of the cuts, or the duration? Because we're hearing a lot more about timeline now. The White House wants a two-year deal. Kevin McCarthy wants 10 years. Uh, we've heard suggestions that they come down to five. But how much is the duration a problem? Uh, I think that's one of the beauties of what the House did. And I know I'm saying that as a Republican, but and I don't know if they did this on purpose but they put a lot of different levers into the discussion. So there is no one thing. You can get on one and give on another, right? So it's not just one thing. You could get your work requirements could change a little bit. The spending reduction amount could change a little bit. The time for the spending could change a little bit. The Mm -hmm. extension or the the raising of the cap could change a little bit. So you've got a multivariable equation, which is smart if you're trying to get to a deal. Because if the Democrats come in and say, look, we can't do X, like, well, that's fine, but you have to give us more on why. And there's many, there's a lot of different topics on the table which should help them get to a deal. Mick, we're really lo- lucky to be able to talk with you about this today. We're even luckier that as we're talking with you, we're continually getting headlines out of Speaker McCarthy. And what he just said, I would love to get your reaction to. He says he is not concerned about losing his speakership. Should he be, Mick? No. Uh, in fact, he, I did ask him that last night, and I think he said the exact same thing. I think. I'm going to put my old Freedom Caucus hat on. Uh, granted, today's Freedom Caucus is not your grandfather's Freedom Caucus, though. I can't yeah. pretend to speak for the group. But a lot, of, a lot of the difficulties that the right wing of the party had with the leadership before Kevin was that they didn't feel like they would be listened to and that they were not valued, were not contributing to the, to the discussion. I really don't think Kevin has that same problem right now. Even if he does lose a couple of votes um, at the, at the, uh, on a final vote, I don't think his speakership is in peril because people realize Republicans realize he's done a pretty good job. He got a bill passed to raise the debt ceiling, which nobody thought was possible. He got huge bipartisan support for his China commission, which nobody thought possible. He got elected, which most people didn't think were possible for a period of time. So now I, I think the temperature has gone down a little bit. That's not to say it can't change in a hurry in Washington, D.C. But the, I think the last thing that anybody's worried about right now is, is Kevin uh, losing his speakership. I think that's probably an accurate statement. So that's changed quite a bit, as a matter of fact. That would suggest that, that this process actually helped him galvanize support along the way. But what happens if they don't like what he turns up with here? Well, that's why I said the temperature can change. Yeah. Um, but the, a lot of the rebellion was born out of a, a, a mistrust. You remember that language coming out of the election, we don't trust Kevin, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Uh, those are the types of things that can be overcome with proper management, proper engagement, and just treating people you know, the right way. So uh, sensible right-wingers recognize they're not going to get their way entirely in Washington, D.C., when they only control a five-vote majority in the House, they don't have the Senate and the White House. So does that, is that, is that sensible, you know, right-wing cover everybody? No. Um, but there's a lot of folks in there who realize that, you know, they might get something at the end of the day um, that they, didn't, they can't vote for, but at least they move the ball in the right direction, yep. and that should be good enough for a lot of them. Joining us from South Carolina, Mick Mulvaney. Thank you, Mick, for the insights. As always, we talk to him around this time every week, the former OMB director, former everything every <laughs> job you can have in Washington, former acting White House chief of staff, former member of Congress, regaling us, reminding us of the great schoolhouse rock on this Monday in Washington.
So much to learn on Saturday mornings. We just didn't realize it. Then. I'm just a bill. Yes, I'm only a bill. And I'm sitting here on Capitol Hill. With Kenny Lines, I'm Joe Matthew. A long, long Joined by Neil Bradley next on the fastest Capitol show in politics. City. It's a long, long this week while I'm Bloomberg. sitting in committee. But I know I'll be a law To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. There have been several references through the course of the program about how calm Wall Street is Hmm. about this whole debt ceiling matter because everyone seems to think that it's going to work out fine. Uh, but of course, uh, corporate America is concerned. Certainly the banking sector is concerned. Kaylee, you ran into Jamie Dimon last week who made that pretty clear. <laughs> yep. You're running into a lot of people uh, here in Washington, but of course that's why you're here. But in all seriousness, there have been a lot of questions about when does the letter come from the heads of, you know, mm-hmm. the, the biggest, the 50 biggest companies in America to try to get this done. And I'm not sure we're going to get something like that. Uh, But this is very real outside of the Beltway. And the next conversation that we're going to have should bring that home for us. Yeah. I mean, when we hear Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen or President Biden Mm -hmm. or Fed Chair Jerome Powell talking about how a default would have serious or catastrophic, to use their language, economic consequences, that is very real. And when we talk about that consequence, it will be born by American business at the end of the day. We're talking about the borrowing costs uh, for taking out loans. It would impact funding. It would have ripple effects uh, across the U.S. economy, in theory, that all aspects of business uh, would feel in some way. This is why the Chamber of Commerce Mm -hmm. even floated the idea, in fact, urged the president to consider using the 14th Amendment. And I think that we're beyond that point now, based on what the president has said, right? He's not going there. He hasn't entirely ruled it out, but he has said alluded to the fact many times that it would likely face a legal challenge. So it doesn't seem like the president is convinced that that is a viable alternative in this scenario. That that, court and then you still default in the end after if it goes wrong. Right, exactly. Janet Yellen was reiterating that message on Sunday morning TV. And we're glad to be joined by Neil Bradley, the executive vice president, chief policy officer and head of strategic advocacy for the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Neil, it's great to have you with us. Are you hoping the president keeps the 14th Amendment on the table? Joe, great to be with you. No, we, we actually don't think the 14th Amendment is a viable option. Uh, we don't believe that uh, that's what the 14th Amendment says. Uh, we think if uh, the administration tried to invoke the 14th Amendment, um, it would uh, have economic consequences almost as calamitous, if not as calamitous, as an actual default itself. So really, the only resolution here is for a bipartisan agreement to be reached between the Speaker and the President and for Congress to lift the debt ceiling. There, there's no uh, uh, magic off-ramp here, and certainly the 14th Amendment would not work. And that does seem to be what 
the administration, or at least the president, also maybe believes he might not be questioning his authority to do so, but just whether or not it would actually be effective uh, in accomplishing what is intended. So that would suggest that it really does come down to getting a deal done. We'll see if we get progress, uh, Neil, on that front today when they meet, uh, the president meets with Speaker McCarthy in about three hours from now. When we talk about the contours of what that deal looks like, what are you hearing from the business community? What do they want to see in that deal? Well, I I think we expect to see kind of three central elements, um, uh, the first of which is rescinding uh, unspent COVID money. I don't think uh, there's hardly anyone who objects to that these days, and that alone would save close to $60 billion. The second is some type of agreement on top-line spending levels uh, for appropriations. This is the amount of money uh, to run the federal agencies that is appropriated each year. That would actually be a good thing because it means that we might have some semblance of a normal appropriations process and avoid a government shutdown where uh, appropriations lapse. The third thing, and this is really something that I think the business community, we see a lot of economic promise in, and that's permitting reform uh, to Mm. speed up the process when it comes to getting federal permits for roads and bridges and energy infrastructure and broadband. Uh, We've been fighting for that for a long time, uh, and we're hopeful that we're going to see permitting reform included as part of this debt limit agreement. How much uh, permitting reform, uh, to what extent would permitting reform help GDP? There's been a a conversation here about economic growth as well. Yeah, so quite a bit because it would allow you to to speed up projects. So if you think about the fact today that most federal permits on average, um, it takes about seven and a half years uh, to go through the federal permitting process, which Mm -hmm. means that's seven and a half years where you're not getting the economic benefits of uh, the new broadband deployment or that new bridge or the new energy infrastructure. So being able to pull those things forward not only gives you the efficiency gains from that new infrastructure, it also means that the infrastructure will actually cost less. Uh, We've run some numbers. uh, If you think about uh, for every million dollars in uh, transportation infrastructure, if we could accelerate uh, the permitting and shave five years off that, we would save about $150,000 for every million dollars in cost. So we're going to get more infrastructure more quickly, and that will only help boost GDP. Seven and a half years, and I thought it took a while to get a debt ceiling deal together. <laughs> thought we'd been having it, this it conversation for a while. Yeah, and that's well, the average. You know, There, there are yeah. transmission lines. Uh, in the southwest uh, United States uh, that were waiting 15 years. They just right. got permitted in the last week. Well, and we do understand, Neil, that that is something that is on the table, maybe will end up uh, in the ultimate package. But as we think about the other things that we know are currently being negotiated, the idea of spending caps or spending cuts, we've also seen a lot of research about the economic impact of that, that kind of pulling back of the fiscal impulse and how ultimately that could have a hand in slowing the economy or at least not having it grow to the degree it would otherwise. How do businesses think about that? Yeah, remember, what they're really talking about is a a subset of the budget. So they're not talking about entitlement, Social Security or Medicare, the health care spending. They're talking about the annual appropriations process. And so um, this is an area that's grown, in some instances, double-digit percentages in recent years. 
And so, um, you know, the last thing on the table uh, over the weekend was the idea of simply freezing it for a year. Freezing spending after you've, you know, increased it 8, 9, 10, 12% a year, I don't think is going to have uh, a real negative impact on the economy. And it would certainly be offset uh, over the long term by beginning to get our fiscal house in order. We're spending some time with Neil Bradley from the Chamber of Commerce. Neil, how often are you hearing from members? Has, has there been a rush to get in touch? Is the phone ringing off the hook or is it just like normal? Well, it's beginning to be normal for for one of these debt limit events, um, which uh, people, you know, months out, I'm sure they'll get it resolved. And as you get closer uh, and now we're, you know, within a a week and a half, uh, people are anxious and they they want to see a deal and they they uh, they know we're going to go up to the 11th hour. But we're kind of at the 10th hour right now. So, um, you know, we need we need to see action. And that's what uh, people are looking for. To what extent are they worried about a credit rating downgrade, not just a default? You know, I, I think there's less concern on the on the rating downgrade. I mean, it remains the case that um, uh, treasuries, U.S. treasuries, are the closest thing to risk-free investments that we have. If um, the debt limit gets raised in a timely fashion, that will continue to be true. Uh, it will reemphasize that we're in this bad posture of always going up uh, to, to the last moment and getting it done. Uh, but I, I think there's a lot less concern about the rating agencies and a lot more concern about making focus that Congress and the president do what they have to get done, what they've always done every other time before, and that's get a deal uh, before we reach a default. When do you need to have a deal, Neil? You know, um, Probably, assuming there's no short-term extension in between, and I wouldn't rule that out, where you have a deal that comes together, but it's going to take you a while to pass it through the House and the Senate, and maybe you get a short-term extension. That's happened before. Uh, But if you really want to make the June 1st deadline, you know, if we're not seeing a a deal Mm -hmm. by by Wednesday, um, it starts to get really hard uh, to ensure that you can process that deal in time. So one of the things we've been warning about for months is uh, a risk of an unintended default where you think you're going to get it done and you kind of stumble your way into default because you miscalculated the timeline. Neil, we only have about 30 seconds left, but I understand that you were at one point about eight years ago, deputy chief of staff to Congressman Kevin McCarthy before he was speaker. Kevin McCarthy, from what you know of him, do you think he would blink or allow the country to default? Which is more likely? I think he is going to insist upon and get a good deal at the end of the day. Won't be a perfect deal. Not everyone's mm-hmm. going to agree with it. Mick Mulvaney was right, uh, but uh, he knows what needs to get done here. And I think uh, more likely than not is that uh, that there's a deal uh, and that it passes on a bipartisan vote. All right. Neil Bradley, we thank you for being with us. Executive VP, Head of Strategic Advocacy, Chief Policy Officer. I think it may be the most important title <laughs> on there. There's got a lot of them, Kaylee at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Thanks for listening to the Sound On Podcast. Make sure to subscribe if you haven't already at Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. And you can find us live every weekday from Washington, D.C. at 1 p.m. Eastern Time at Bloomberg.com. 
To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.